Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Roberto Carmack about his new book, Kazakhstan in World War II, Mobilization and Ethnicity in the Soviet Empire, published by University Press of Kansas. Roberto Carmack is an independent historian living in the Washington, D.C. area. He earned his Ph.D. in 2015 from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Roberto, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I was hoping we could start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background, and your interest in, in the topic of your book, World War II, Kazakhstan, and the History of the Soviet Union. Sure. Well, I've been interested in Russia and Central Asia for quite some time. I enrolled in grad school at UW-Madison with the intent to do something with Central Asia. Uh, I just find it fascinating because Central Asia is in some ways a marginal geographic location. It's been the object of imperial exploitation and competition uh, for 200 years, Uh, yet it's still significant in many ways. Um, so when I started studying Russian in grad school, I went to a few locations in Russia and Central Asia, and it became immediately apparent that, uh, the stereotype that a lot of perhaps non-academic people have about Russia, that it's mono-ethnic, that it's dominated by, uh, Russian people, it's true to an extent, but, you know, the Soviet Union and the successor states in the Russian Federation and Central Asia are very ethnically diverse. And I found that fascinating. So I wanted to learn how these kind of ethnic politics played out in practice. Uh, And I've also been interested in military history for quite some time, especially uh, the military history of World War II. So studying Central Asia in World War II seemed like a logical choice because, uh, one, uh, as I'm sure your readers are aware, most histories of World War II that are written uh, in the United States focus on either the Pacific East Asian theater or the European theaters. And that makes a lot of sense. Most of the major combat operations of the war took place in those locations, but their entire regions like Kazakhstan and the rest of Central Asia that were affected by the war in tremendous ways, demographically, militarily, socially, And this seemed like a great way of kind of moving the historiography a bit forward since most of the great works uh, that have been produced in the last 20 years, for the most part, end their analysis in the 1930s. So this was a way of satisfying my own interests and contributing to the field. Great. And so how how did you um, come across uh, the idea to look specifically at Kazakhstan? You know, there are many... um, as you mentioned, non-Russian uh, ethnicities in the former Soviet Union, and yet um, the focus of your book is specifically Kazakhstan. Is there another reason for this, or did you study the Kazakh language? Uh, yeah, there were a couple practical and more academically oriented reasons why I chose Kazakhstan. One, UW-Madison offered a really excellent Kazakh language program, so I put two and two together and decided to go to Kazakhstan But Kazakhstan in particular proved to be fortuitous because 
uh, Kazakhstan has a very complex history of not only imperial entanglements with the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, but the ethnic situation in the Kazakh Socialist Republic and the post-Soviet uh, Kazakhstani state is somewhat unique because the Slavic population has been uh, quite large since the 1890s, much larger than in other Central Asian countries like Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan, or Tajikistan. Uh, so since I was interested in how these ethnic ethnicities interacted with each other and how the Soviet state um, kind of assessed them and tailored its policies to differentiate between them and to account for their so-called developmental differences and cultural differences, uh, for that reason, Kazakhstan uh, was ideal. And also, um, Kazakhstan is a really good place for a Westerner to conduct research and uh, the archives there are more open than in most of the surrounding countries with the possible exception of Kyrgyzstan, certainly more open than in Russia. Uh, doing a military-themed um, research project in Russia is not impossible, but it's extremely difficult. In Kazakhstan, uh, they're much more open. This is part of their so-called multi-vector foreign policy, where they actually want uh, Westerners and American citizens in particular to do some research there. So it proved to be a good choice. Great, thanks. And so you you start the book by looking at the um, mobilization uh, strategies of of the Soviet state and, and the multiple institutions that were involved in that in Kazakhstan. But I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a picture of um, the history of Kazakhstan up until 1941, and then uh, kind of give us a breakdown of, of the process of, of mobilization uh, among Kazakh soldiers uh, in 1941 up until 1944. Sure. So as I just alluded to, Kazakhstan was integrated into first the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union a bit earlier than the other Central Asian territories. Uh, Kazakh territories began to be annexed by the Tsarist Empire in the late 18th century. Uh, and the Kazakh steppe starting in the late 19th century saw a dramatic influx of Slavic colonizers. Um, so the Kazakhs are, of course, a historically nomadic people. Uh, you know, it's a complicated question, but most Kazakhs adhere to some form of pastoral nomadism, at least partially so, until the Russian Revolution of 1917. So when the Bolsheviks came to power in both um, the Russian core and on the Kazakh stop, steppe, all territories that would eventually become part of the Soviet Union, they're confronted with this novel question that uh, fed into questions of conscription, uh, citizenship, and other key aspects of imperial integration. And the question was simply, how do you integrate Kazakh nomads into a modern military culture? And is that even desirable? And of course, when the Bolsheviks came to power in 1917, uh, everybody knows that they adhered to a ideology of so-called class liberation, about freeing the oppressed classes from exploitation. Uh, but they also adhere to, at least in theory, this idea of what you can call, for a lack of a better word, ethnic liberation. The Kazakhs were portrayed as victims of Tsarist colonialism, uh, and they were supposed to be the equals of Slavs. At least that was the theory in the beginning of the 1920s. 
So on that basis, there was a push to integrate Cossacks into the nascent Red Army. And this is something that uh, their imperial predecessors weren't really too keen on. They viewed the Cossacks as being a little bit too primitive to integrate it into the army and be effective soldiers. And here, this is, you know, this is part of what Europeans, uh, or this is similar to what other European powers thought of regarding other indigenous peoples in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. So what's interesting is the Bolsheviks have this liberationist idea, but they're still being influenced by these Eurocentric conceptions. So from the 1920s to the 1930s, the Cossacks are integrated into the Red Army in fits and starts. Uh, but by the 1930s, after the brutal collectivization of the Cossack steppe, uh, Stalinist authorities decide that it is desirable to integrate the Cossacks pretty much wholesale into the military as far as possible. Uh, and this was part and parcel of this idea of including the Cossacks and all other non-Russian peoples into the socialist project. And military service was a good way of doing this because uh, through the military, uh, Cossack conscripts could learn things like the Russian language, literacy more generally, atheism, these core concepts that Soviet leaders wanted all peoples to learn uh, who inhabited the USSR. So then we hit the war. The Germans invade in June 1941, and the Soviets are confronted with another dilemma. So they're suffering tremendous casualties in the first year or so of the war, um, just entire divisions being wiped out on the Western Front. Clearly, the demand for manpower was great. Uh, yet, what my research shows is the Soviets continued to be ambivalent about this idea of Kazakh participation in the war and Central Asian participation more generally. So what my book tries to show is that, um, yes, Kazakhs were integrated in very large numbers, uh, but this integration proceeded in a haphazard manner. Uh, Kazakhs were discriminated against the front, uh, and that's why their integration into these Soviet institutions was incomplete, uh, even though so many served on the front lines. Uh, so it was a very complicated picture in many ways. Yeah, and so um, in, in chapter two and again in chapter four, you dedicate a lot of time to uh, looking at wartime propaganda. Was there – I mean, was the purpose of propaganda to deal with maybe some of the issues that arise um, because of this kind of tenuous uh, mobilization? Or, um, you know, why, why is propaganda so important? Uh, at this time? And is it effective, you know, uh, what the Soviets are trying to do on the front and at home? Um, is this propaganda effective in in raising morale or is it serving some kind of other purpose? Right. So I dedicate two chapters on propaganda. And this is propaganda that Communist Party authorities uh, and Kazakh propagandists developed uh, specifically targeting both Kazakh soldiers and Kazakh laborers on the home front, that is, in Kazakhstan proper. Uh, the reason they focused so much on propaganda was because, it, in some ways, there is no other way for Communist Party authorities to conceive of the best way to disseminate uh, communist ideology and the so-called correct ideological message. Uh, uh, I'm sure your reader, uh, excuse me, your listeners know that, you know, the Soviet Union was a highly ideological state. Propaganda was omnipresent, or at least it was supposed to be. So 
what happens in the war, and this had, has been an ongoing issue since the early 1920s, is on the one hand, the Soviets believe that the Cossacks are a distinct national or ethnic group, and that propaganda should be tailored to their so-called national specificities. That means that there should be references to Cossack national history, um, propaganda should be conducted as much as possible in the Cossack national language, etc., etc., Yet, on the other hand, especially in the 1940s, there is this competing drive to assimilate Kazakhs into uh, Red Army culture, into Soviet industrial culture. And the issue is that this culture is by default Russo-centric, meaning that it's conducted in the Russian language. Um, and there are many references to the dominant Russian people. So there's a contradiction there. And to me, this is important because it exposes uh, one of the central contradictions at the heart of both uh, Soviet national nationality policies in general and uh, Soviet policies towards Kazakhs in particular. Now, the question you raise about how Kazakhs responded to this, uh, that's a very good one. In some ways, my book does not address the question directly because I feel as though uh, to really do the topic justice, you have to delve into uh, the post-war period. And that's something that uh, historians have uh, just recently started to do. Uh, But um, what became very apparent in my research is that many Kazakh soldiers, they did, uh, at least in theory, embrace some of the ideas that were propagated uh, through this propaganda. For example, uh, by 1944, 1945, Kazakh propaganda, especially on the front, it became highly Sovietized. What I mean by that is that Kazakh themes were eliminated from this ideological canon, but references to the uh, pre-Soviet history of the Kazakh people, for example, were quite marginalized. Instead, frontline propagandists and, to a lesser extent, Communist Party propagandists in Kazakhstan focused more and more on uh, Kazakh heroes from the Soviet period itself, from the Russian Civil War and from the, from the Great Patriotic War period itself. Uh, so Kazakh people more and more began to identify uh, with heroes uh, from the war period, like Elia uh, Moldogulova, for example, a really famed uh, female Soviet fighter whose image and story was disseminated to practically all Kazakh soldiers. Uh, so you find in the post-war period, you know, these Kazakh veterans, they're articulating their identity using more Soviet terms. They're using more Russian, for example. Uh, They're referencing their feats of arms at the front, but they're still doing it in a way that's Kazakh. So you have this kind of dual identity that was consolidated during the war. And do you think that there's a, um, there's maybe an issue here with like, I'm I'm curious why um, suddenly um, they feel the need to stop talking about pre-1917 Kazakh history. Is there some kind of um, worry here that bringing up um, anti-imperialist or anti-Russian national heroes is going to um, give give Kazakhs the wrong idea? And then also, um, I, I think you mentioned... Uh, a similar situation happening in, in Bashkortostan with the Bashkirs and maybe in Dagestan as well. So is this is this a, a kind of pan-Soviet phenomenon happening or is there something specific about Kazakhstan uh, on this regard? 
it would be best to describe it as a pan-Soviet phenomenon. So, you know, the history of Kazakh opposition to Russian imperial rule is a long and bloody one. Uh, the Kazakhs were under the Tsar as a colonized people, and like most colonized peoples, they resisted it sometimes uh, very bitterly. Uh, at first, and here I'm talking about the early 1920s, uh, Soviet authorities active actively cultivated this uh, historical and ideological emphasis on the so-called Kazakh national liberation struggle, because for them, this was a good uh, conceptual cudgel to bash uh, their czar's predecessors with. But in the 1930s, the situation starts changing. Other historians, especially David Brendenberger, have described how uh, the Soviet ideological establishment takes this very strong uh, Russo-centric turn in the mid to late 1930s. At this point, the Bolsheviks begin to decide that, listen, it's not good to cast aspersions on the Russian people, even if you're referring to the 19th century, because the Russians are the dominant people of the Soviet Union. They're the glue that's holding everything together. But then something interesting happens during the war. Uh, Some of this emphasis on the Kazakh national liberation struggle and other national liberation struggles too, such as in Bashkiria or in Dagestan, it starts to re-enter the picture a little bit. And this is because the early period of the war, I'm talking about the first one to two years in particular, when the situation of the front was extremely precarious and unstable. Uh, During this time, Uh, there was a willingness on the part of local propagandists in the non-Russian republics and in Moscow to experiment a little bit. So some uh, permission was granted to kind of re-explore these topics. And this information was disseminated to Kazakh soldiers at the front because this was seen as a good way of inspiring them by by reminding them that their ancestors were, uh, you know, effective soldiers, that they were brave, et cetera, et cetera. But then, yeah, you're right. In 1944, 1945, uh, the ideological establishment snaps back to the 1930 status quo, where, again, there's this worry that, you know, you can't focus too much on this so-called anti-Russian discourse because it would threaten the dominant position of the Russians uh, in Kazakhstan, in Bashkiria, and other non-Russian republics. So this is, again, a return to the status quo. Uh this was done because the Soviet leadership felt that they were secure, that they um, didn't need to inspire Kazakh soldiers to such a dramatic extent as before because the situation at the front was a little bit more uh, propitious for the Red Army. And I'm interested because you, you spend a lot of, you know, in, in, the, in Chapter 2, you, you're looking at um, propaganda on the, on the front. And then I think in Chapter 4, you're, you're more looking at uh, propaganda in wartime Kazakhstan. First of all, I'm I'm curious, like what kind of sources you were using uh, to explore this? Are you are you looking at the the agitprop workers themselves? Are you reading newspapers? Um, how do you get a sense for for what kind of propaganda was being used? And then also, like, how do you gauge um, the response of of either Kazakh citizens? or of uh, soldiers on the front? And then finally, uh, what are do you see any major differences between the pro- kind of propaganda being conducted on the front uh, as compared to kind of the home front uh, back in Kazakhstan? Sure. So the main sources I looked at were 
Communist Party documents, especially the Ajiprop section of the Communist Party of Kazakhstan. Uh, this was really helpful because, you know, the Kazakh Communist Party was obviously involved in ideological uh, production at the front and in Kazakhstan. So if you're talking about the front and Kazakhstan proper, it's important to differentiate between the two main institutions involved. At the front, there was the main political administration of the Red Army. This was actually a party body that was responsible for ideological indoctrination among Red Army soldiers. Uh, so in addition to Kazakh Communist Party documents, uh, because there's a lot of correspondence between uh, the main political administration and Communist Party bodies throughout the Soviet Union. Uh, in addition to those administrative documents, I looked at some memoirs. Uh, there is one very prominent Kazakh Communist Party worker. Uh, his last name was Amanjolov, and he occupies a prominent place in the second chapter of my book. Uh, he not only wrote propaganda, he wrote memoirs about his experiences as a pretty high-level propagandist, but he produced propaganda itself, and I was able to acquire a book of his uh, Zapisky, his notes, uh, lectures that he conducted at the front about any number of themes, and reports to central party bodies where he complained about the deficiencies in propaganda. Uh, and as you can imagine, there were many. Um, it was very hard to tailor propaganda for Kazakh soldiers in practice because of a lack of resources, uh, difficulties with translation, the list goes on and on. And when it came to looking at the propaganda itself, I focused a lot of my attention not only on lectures that were conducted at the front and in Kazakhstan, uh, but also at newspapers because uh, Communist Party authorities saw newspapers as a prime means of disseminating their message. Uh, not only were these newspapers sent to the front and to colchoses or collective farms in large numbers, uh, but they were read aloud. This was one of the major mediums for propagandists to get the word out. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the Central State Archive of Kazakhstan uh, going through frontline and Kazakhstani newspapers. Uh, I looked at uh, many titles, something like 10, and looked at the dominant themes, focusing on topics that um, were unique to Kazakhstan. Because as you can imagine, there was a lot of uh, sharing of information between central newspapers like Pravda and Izvestia. Uh, a lot of the stories were reproduced wholesale uh, for Kazakhs. But then there is a small corpus of materials that was exclusively in Kazakh, and there you can kind of see different themes emerge. Uh, to get to your last question of how Kazakh soldiers reacted to this propaganda, uh, it's a pretty difficult question to answer because for the most part, uh, I did look at Communist Party um, investigations of how Kazakh soldiers reacted, uh, but these were very formulaic. Uh, they mainly said that, you know, Kazakh soldiers are inspired, that they enjoy hearing about their uh, homeland, about their national history, etc. Uh, but I didn't find these uh, very satisfying from a methodological standpoint. Uh, so I tried to look at other memoirs to kind of read between the lines and see how Kazakh soldiers might have reacted. Uh, but really, the proof of this is in the post-war period and subsequent decades uh, when Kazakh soldiers uh, focused on ideas that, in my opinion, first found their way uh, into the popular imagination through propaganda. For example, uh, 
my original idea was to interview a lot of Kazakh veterans of the war. And I did do that, but I found that, uh, you know, these men and women are quite old now. And most of their reminiscences, they adhered almost exactly to the propaganda that was produced uh, during the war, almost word for word. Uh, and in a way, that shows you that propaganda, at least in the long term, did have quite the effect in, in printing itself on the minds of its recipients. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I didn't expect that. And I'd, I'd like to talk maybe later on uh, more about, about your, your process of interviewing those individuals. But um, I wanted to kind of shift the conversation a little bit uh, to the third chapter of your book, in which you actually look at the, uh, the home front or kind of um, the labor front in Kazakhstan and you look at labor mobilization, um, because for me, this is a really unfamiliar part of the story. You know, we're used to hearing about uh, soldiers and, and serving on the front, but actually you, you paint uh, what is a pretty grim picture um, on the home front. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, what kind of uh, labor mobilization is happening in Kazakhstan during the war, what are they producing and, and how does this fit into the bigger kind of picture of the Soviet economy during war? Sure. So I decided that a chapter on labor mobilization was definitely needed uh, because, you know, um, a lot of Soviet histories are confined to the Western front of the war. That would be the Eastern front for uh, a Western audience. But, you know, Labor was an integral part of the war, and I found enough documentation in these various archives to really tell a compelling story about it. Uh, so there were many kinds of labor mobilization that took place, um, and there were some that were general to the Soviet Union, some that were unique to Kazakhstan. In general, in Kazakhstan, the emphasis was on producing foodstuffs. Uh, on collective farms. Uh, Kazakhstan for a long time had been a primarily agricultural republic. Uh, that had started to change during the 1930s and the two f- five-year plans. Uh, so some focus was placed during the war on uh, producing uh, steel and other raw materials that could be refashioned into war material, especially in factories and places like the Urals. Uh, but the focus was on raw industrial and or foodstuffs. So the question is, how did Soviet authorities manage to up production, even though the population of the Republic uh, went up and down uh, during 1941, 1942? It certainly went down uh, because Kazakh soldiers were leaving for the front, not just Kazakh soldiers, but Russian inhabitants of the Republic too. So immediately the workforce is being depleted. And that was compensated for quite a bit by the arrival of deportees and evacuees who started to arrive in 1941 as well. But here you have, as you said, it's a grim picture because uh, Soviet authorities in typical Stalinist fashion decided that the best way to up production was simply to increase coercion. So one of the main means of mobilizing these people for work was forced population movements. For example... Uh, to up agricultural production, uh, city dwellers in places like Kostanai or Shamkent or Almata uh, were forcefully moved from the cities to the countryside uh, to farm. Uh, 
Um, in addition, one of the perhaps worst forms of labor exploitation that took place was the so-called labor army. The labor army was this uh, highly militarized network of essentially prison camps that were very similar to the Gulag in most respects. And this was an institution where non-Russian national minorities were kept in uh, horrible conditions. Uh, They felled timber, uh, they worked on construction sites and mines. And here, the dominant populations were, on the one hand, uh, mobilized Central Asians who were either too infirm or physically unable to fight at the front or because they had suspect political backgrounds, and also Soviet German deportees. These were deportees from mostly the European parts of the Soviet Union uh, who were deported in the fall of 1941 uh, to various um, punitive or... Uh, perhaps not punitive, but various uh, repressive institutions in Kazakhstan and other eastern regions where they are forced to work uh, with inadequate food. Um, So labor exploitation in general, and this is one of, I believe, the major uh, contributions of the book, it disproportionately affected uh, non-Russian peoples, uh, Kazakhs and especially deportees. Yeah, and this is, I think this is kind of one essential part of your argument, um, is that uh, wartime kind of, if not creates, exacerbates these kind of national hierarchies. And I think you get to that uh, even more uh, in that fifth chapter, which looks at the deportations of um, not just the Volga Germans, but also um, different nationalities from the Coxes. Um and I was curious, is, is this something new? Is this a new story? Um, because I'm at least familiar with the deportations from the Caucasus, and I think those have been talked about for some time. But how do you see, um, what do you bring new to this story? And is it, is it the, the sources you had access to? I know you were able to work with some NKVD documents. Or is there is this kind of a familiar story told in a new light? Or um, I was curious about your decision to bring uh, the deportations uh, into the broader story. Right. So, yeah, the deportations have been examined quite a bit, especially the Soviet German deportations, because German scholars have done a pretty excellent job of producing uh, secondary works on that topic. Um, Source-wise, yeah, I have a lot of NKVD documents uh, that their ultimate origin is Moscow. I also looked at a lot of documentation in Almaty. Uh, Part of the contribution here is the focus on labor exploitation because some works, uh, for example, Catherine Yolok's book on Polish deportees, and um, Michael Apol's work on North Caucasian, especially Chechen deportees in Kazakhstan, do focus on labor exploitation. But the issue with these really excellent secondary works is that, you know, they don't focus much on the war period itself. Uh, They take most of their focus and place it on the immediate post-war period and subsequent decades. But I believe it was important to focus on the war period because... um, the situation of these deportees is really important for understanding uh, the changing ethnic hierarchy that took place or that uh, was consolidated in Kazakhstan during World War II. Uh, 
this is something that uh, you've already alluded to. This is one of my key arguments that the war itself helped consolidate this new ethnic hierarchy within Kazakhstan. And what I mean by that is basically Slavic peoples were on top. And this is not a new argument. Uh, People have been pointing this out for the Soviet Union as a whole for some time. Uh, But it's really when you bring in officially repressed groups like the Chechens and the Soviet Germans, where you can see the contours of this hierarchy in a new light. Uh, For example, deportees were treated worse because they were associated uh, with treason. This was very different from how Cossacks were treated. Cossacks were also mistreated at the front, uh, in the labor army, and in other institutions, but it was for a different reason. It was because Soviet authorities had this implicit notion that Cossacks were developmentally backward, uh, that they were culturally deficient compared to Russians. That was bad, of course, but you don't really see these murderous policies applied to Kazakhs and other Central Asians that you do towards uh, deportees. And the reason is because in the Stalinist Soviet Union, uh, to be primitive or to be considered primitive uh, was a bad thing, but to be considered treasonous by dint of one's nationality, that was worse. That was disastrous. And it was only by bringing in the deported peoples into the story where that difference uh, comes into really sharp relief. And um, so, so it, what that tells me is that in general, you're also interested in, in thinking uh, more broadly about World War II as a transformative period uh, for, for Kazakhstan. And I was curious because you have this chapter, um, you know, on the, on the Kazakh wartime economy. And, you know, we, we have uh, Sarah Cameron's recent book on the basically um, – huge changes in agricultural production and the famines in the 1930s is is the wartime experience equally transformative as the 1930s were uh, for the Kazakh economy I mean did you get any sense of of what happens in the post-war period or is that a bit beyond the the purview of your book yeah that's an interesting question um, the short answer is no it wasn't as significant as for example, the forest sedentarization and collectivization of uh, the Kazakh population during the early 1930s. Um, I would argue that it's best to view the war as sort of the capstone in a long chain of historical events that led to Kazakhstan's integration into the Soviet Union. First, we have the October Revolution, then forced collectivization during the 1930s, industrialization during uh, also the 1930s, and then the war from 1941 to 1945. In the grand scheme of modern Kazakh history, uh, collectivization was more significant. It completely changed the Kazakhs' demographic structure, this terrible famine killed well over a million Kazakhs, uh, destroyed their nomadic way of life, which was one of the um, key aspects of being Kazakh in the first place, was adherence to this at least partially nomadic mode of life. Um, So in that respect, the war sort of contributed to this ongoing official effort to force the Kazakhs to uh, think in a Soviet way and to act in a Soviet way. And, you know... Some of the processes that were laid down during the war uh, and that actually began during the 1930s do find expression uh, in subsequent decades. For example, the war, it becomes very clear that Soviet authorities are more than willing 
to heavily exploit the Kazakhs to achieve their military slash strategic objectives uh, through conscription, through exploitation of the labor army. After Stalin dies in 1953, uh, this is less significant uh, or at least less severe. Uh, but you still see this phenomenon where Soviet leaders, in, even under the more liberal Khrushchev or Brezhnev, uh, still see the Kazakhs as a somewhat uh, inferior group compared to Russians, and thus they are seemingly more willing to exploit them. And here you have, as a good example, uh, the use of uh, Seme province in northern Kazakhstan as a nuclear testing ground, uh, where uh, severe damage was done to the local Kazakh population. Yeah, and and I'm curious too if if we're just talking about um, kind of like the legacy of the war, um, what happens to these uh, deported peoples who are, are? I mean, do they remain in uh, Kazakhstan? Is there any attempt to later um, bring them back to the Caucasus or to the Volga region? Um, I mean, would we go there and find their the the, the descendants of these people today, or um, so? Uh, after the war, there is this effort to integrate the deported peoples into local society. Um, during the war itself, this was very difficult because uh, party state authorities, to a degree, and definitely the deportees themselves, uh, do not really believe that the deportations will be a permanent thing. Uh, this starts to change in subsequent decades, but you still have this undercurrent of uh, resistance to the deportation measures. And groups like the Chechens and Soviet Germans arguably never really believe that their proper homeland is Kazakhstan. And under Khrushchev, uh, this pressure, along with other kinds of pressure that came about because of ethnic conflict, for example, become quite severe. Uh, and because of petitions from these deported peoples, at least the North Caucasians, uh, Soviet leaders do relent and allow the North Caucasians to return to the Caucasus and they restore their homelands. Uh, the situation for the Soviet Germans was worse. Uh, the Volga German Republic, from which most of the Soviet Germans were deported from, uh, was never restored. Uh, and as a consequence, most of the Soviet Germans actually leave the Soviet Union entirely uh, once the emigration regime is liberalized in the post-war period, and they go predominantly to West Germany. If you go to Kazakhstan today, there's still a small Soviet German population. They're considered one of the uh, constituent ethnic elements of the modern Kazakhstani Republic. And of course, there are still Chechens and other North Caucasian uh, groups that um, either remained in Kazakhstan throughout the 70s and 80s, or that had to return to Kazakhstan, in a sense return, uh, because of the Chechen wars of the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, where Sadly, uh, Kazakhstan became much safer than Chechnya, and they already had these established familial and clan networks to rely on. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, so I, I do want to. So I'm going to turn the conversation a little bit here because I, I, I recall now that um, uh, during the war, another kind of I, I see repeatedly that 1943, and this makes sense if we think about. Uh, the history of the war, but 1943 is a big turning point in, in your narrative too. Um, and I'm thinking specifically about uh, kind of the return of religion, if we want to call that. Um, in that chapter four on uh, propaganda, you also talk about um, kind of the official recognition of Islam, 
1943. And I think this happens at the same time that um, Stalin makes some concessions about um, the position of Orthodox Christianity in the Soviet Union. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I think these are mostly institutional process, but processes. But is this is this a real return of Islam, or is it kind of uh, what what function does it serve, and, and why why does this happen in 1943? Right. So the question of the role of Islam in the wartime Soviet Union is a quite controversial one. Uh, in addition to my own writing, uh, Aaron Tassar has written about this quite a bit. And there's been a pretty concerted debate in the literature about what this so-called return to Islam actually meant in practice. So the Soviet Union always had a very difficult relationship with Islamic belief and Muslim believers. Um, in some ways, Soviet authorities treated Islam like it did Russian Orthodoxy and other religious groups. Uh, they viewed Islam as an undesirable vestige of the past, as reactionary, and as anti-Soviet. And from the revolution to World War II, this kind of attitude ebbed and flowed. By the 19th, late 1930s, uh, during the so-called Great Terror, uh, religious authorities in Central Asia were subjected to just brutal persecution. Um, and officially sanctioned Islam at that time, it didn't cease to exist, but it was extremely hobbled. It couldn't do much in the way of influencing uh, Islamic life. And these um, unofficial Sufi orders that operated in a sort of clandestine realm in places like Kazakhstan especially, uh, they continue to exist. But um, anyone that Soviet authorities considered to be associated with Islamic belief uh, were uh, apt to be persecuted, arrested, and possibly killed. So, as you mentioned, during the war, something happens, particularly in 1943. The Soviet Union uh, conducts what I would describe as a turnaround in its policy. First, the Russian Orthodox Patriarchate is reestablished, and the Patriarchate is turned into a major institutional ally of the Soviet state. Uh, the Orthodox Church is conducting propaganda on behalf of the Soviet state, not Marxist-Leninist propaganda. This is religious propaganda. Uh, but the goal is to uh, increase the zeal of Orthodox believers to prosecute the war. And something similar happens in Central Asia. Uh, Stalin uh, gives an order to relents pressure on uh, the official Islamic establishment. And in Central Asia, it's split into the spiritual administration of the Muslims of Central Asia and Kazakhstan, or SADUM. That's the acronym. And I would argue that, you know, it's important not to overstate what this meant in practice. This doesn't mean that the Soviet Union all of a sudden uh, believed that Islam and Islamic belief were positive things. It didn't. Uh, this was more of an instrumental way of garnering support from the war effort. I think here there's an implicit acknowledgement by Soviet authorities that Marxist-Leninist propaganda, even in its Kazakh variant, uh, may not uh, have been very effective, especially among um, you know poor Kazakh awul or village dwellers. They needed something else, and focusing on the spiritual administration was a logical choice. Uh, so what this meant is that uh, they were paying the spiritual administration more money. They were allowing it 
some latitude in conducting um, religious services for the population. So this was is best described in as, as an alliance between the spiritual administration and the Soviet state uh, to prosecute the war effort. So at first, it it's a mobilizational effort. Uh, that's the end goal. And then later, uh, Sadun becomes a permanent fixture of life in Central Asia. And this is mainly done so the Soviet Union has um, institutional means to interface with local Muslims to uh, maintain a de- degree of control over local Muslim religious life. Yeah, and I, I think that point, you know, the, 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 this question of Islam and, and the debates that surround it kind of raises another point about the, members, the memory and the legacy of World War II um, in, in post-Soviet countries today. And I was curious, um, I'm not sure this is something you get at directly in the book, but having spent a lot of time in, in Kazakhstan, I'm sure you've talked about uh, these topics with people quite a bit. I'm curious how how you think like the average Kazakh uh, today would would um, think about uh, the narrative you're putting forth in the book. You know, maybe maybe the story about uh, the wartime front would be familiar, but it, it, is the for instance is the history of of the home front and and the the rationing and uh, this kind of very extractive, exploitative um, labor regime—is—is is this in the public consciousness, or is this would this be seen as a kind of controversial narrative in Kazakhstan today? Yeah, it would be a controversial narrative for the most part. So when I first arrived in Kazakhstan, I started doing research in archives and, you know, you tell the archivist or the librarian about the topic, I would say Kazakhstan during the Great Patriotic War, and they'd be like, well, that makes sense. That was a big topic. Americans must be interested in Central Asia's role in the war. And I said, you know, for the most part, we haven't been. Uh, It's kind of a blind spot in our history, in our historiography. And they would be shocked. They would say, how could this be? It was so important for us. And I'm like, well, that's why I'm trying to write it. But You know, reading post-Soviet Kazakhstani text on the war, it's remarkable the extent to which Soviet themes, Soviet ideas, and Soviet narratives continue to pervade the scholarship. Uh, In some ways, they're virtually identical. There's a strong emphasis on uh, the patriotic sacrifice that Kazakh soldiers uh, made on, yes, labor mobilization and the efforts of collective farmers and industrial workers to contribute to the victory. And here it's fundamentally similar to the kind of themes that pervade uh, Russian historical works about the war. Um, Yes, it's starting to change a little bit. For example, the new official history of Kazakhstan uh, in its chapter on the war has a small section on the deported groups uh, discussing how the war led to their deportation how they contributed to the war with their labor. But for the most part, uh, you know, this was a dark period in their history. But, you know, this idea, for example, that Cossacks were discriminated against during the war, uh, that they were uh, subjected to the horrors of the labor army, this is something that uh, many Cossacks, I would predict, uh, wouldn't be too keen to hear because there is this perception that that takes away from the more heroic narrative of fighting at the front and so-called courageous labor on the home front. 
so yes, it, it is um, controversial because it does significantly depart from still dominant Soviet narratives. Yeah, and I, I find that really interesting because you know it, it it's kind of a good reminder that that actually both of these narratives can kind of exist, and that that um, the war experience meant a lot for uh, different groups of people, and that you know it's probably it just introduces this uh, complexity that maybe we we sometimes miss. And so on that note, I kind of want to give you a, a chance to to kind of step back and. And tell us kind of what what are the the bigger picture kind of takeaways that you have from your book? What is this? Um, what does your research tell us about Soviet Empire? What does it tell us about kind of ethnicity in the Soviet Union, or um, kind of the as you put it, the creation of national hierarchies? What what's what's the what are the main points you want the reader to take away with this project? Sure. So. One of the, I'd say the primary argument of the book was that the war altered the nature of inter-ethnic relations in Kazakhstan. And it did this, at least in part, by sort of shifting the parameters of inclusion and exclusion. Uh, and these parameters shifted in accordance with the mobilizational goals of the Soviet leaders. Uh, so here I was looking at how the Soviet regime's nationality slash ethnic policies interface with their mobilizational policies. And like I mentioned before, what becomes very clear by 1945 and the end of the war is that uh, this ethnic hierarchy is firmer than it had been before the war with Russians and other Slavs up top, uh, Central Asians in the middle, and deported groups who arrived in Kazakhstan from 1941 to 1945 at the bottom. Uh, And this is important because, uh, you know, here you find a way to assess how um, non-Russian national minorities like Kazakhs or even deportees assess their role in the Soviet Union and in this so-called ethnic hierarchy. You know, I found, for example, that after the war, uh, Kazakhs, and you can say the same about other Central Asian groups like Kyrgyz or Uzbeks, they started to frame their identities, at least in part, by referencing uh, their close proximity to so-called traitorous groups like Soviet Germans, Chechens, and others. Um, And this was done, in my opinion, intentionally. They were trying to uh, compare themselves favorably to these so-called traitorous groups to underline their own Sovietness, to underline the fact that they were patriotic peoples. Uh, They insist, for example, well, we fought in the war, we fought at the front, whereas these Soviet Germans did not. But the ironic part is, of course, is that it was Soviet policies themselves that uh, permit Kazakh veterans and others to engage in this kind of discourse because uh, it was the Soviet Union or excuse me, the Soviet regime that ultimately decided to send the Kazakhs to the front, although they did so in a kind of inconsistent manner. And it was Soviet authorities who kicked the Soviet Germans and other repressed groups out of the army. So it's a fascinating way of looking at how uh, national minorities um, use state policies to articulate and buttress their own identities as Soviet peoples. Well, thanks. Thank you for that. And and um, I think we're nearing the end of our time here. But uh, as is custom, I usually like to ask um, our guests if they're working on any current projects or if they have any kind of projects, future projects in mind. Uh, that we should be looking out for. Yeah, so uh, right now I'm very interested in this 
the historiography of the great famine that occurred on the Kazakh stop step in the early 1930s. Uh, as you mentioned, Sarah Cameron has just written a very good book about this topic. Um, with Sarah Cameron's book, uh, Robert Kindler's recent book, uh, we have a pretty good idea of um, the dynamics of the famine, the consequences of forced collectivization, etc. So I would be interested in writing sort of a military history of forced collectivization on the Kazakh step because, um, you know, collectivization was accompanied by large-scale rebellion on the part of uh, former Kazakh nomads resisting the imposition of Soviet control in the step, uh, food requisitioning, forced collectivization, etc., and other historians like, um, well, other historians have written about this topic. Niccolo Pianciola, that's the name I was thinking of, has written some good work about this. But there's so many questions that um, are related to the military aspects. Uh, how did ethnicity play a role in the suppression of these revolts? Um how how come Soviet authorities uh, didn't rely on Kazakh conscripts? Was it just a question of loyalty? Um, and more, uh, you know, these difficult questions, but important ones, how did Kazakh rebels, how on earth did they manage to field uh, these uh, guerrilla forces when they were starving to death? Uh, you know, these questions um, beg answers, in my opinion. So that's something that I would like to work on in the future. That sounds great. And we'll hopefully look forward to your, your second book. Um, and you can come back and, and give an interview again. Um, and uh, so thank you again, Roberto, for, for sitting down and, and um, going into great detail about this, these very important topics. And for the listeners, uh, once again, if you, if you liked what you heard and you want to read more, um, the book we were discussing is Roberto Carmack's uh, Kazakhstan in World War II, Mobilization and Ethnicity in the Soviet Empire, published by the University Press of Kansas uh, this year. Um, so thank, thank you again, Roberto. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it.